And we have reached the last message in our series on the life of Jesus, our final message. This is a big deal for me. This is message number 129 in the series. And as I pointed out, it took Jesus three years to fulfill his earthly ministry, and it's taken us four years to study it. So we've been doing it in a slower pace than real time, which is actually quite an achievement. (laughs) We're talking about the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man on his mission to restore the broken relationship between us and God. And this Mission is documented in four books we find in the Bible. These four books are together referred to as the Gospels, and today we're going to begin in chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew. And and without me uh, bloviating or going off on a side trail, uh, if you were to ask me, Jeff, what's the, the one thing that has most stuck out to you after studying this? I did the math, and in just studying for this series, it's somewhere in the region of around 2,000 hours um, over the last four years that I've spent studying the Gospels and, and reading up on it. And, and the thing that just strikes me the most is, is just that Jesus is extraordinary as a man, not, not just because he's God and he's the, the head honcho, but his character and who he is is absolutely wonderful. There's, there's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody who thinks like Jesus, who loves like Jesus. Uh, he is absolutely extraordinary. And uh, I could spend a lifetime just going over and over and over the Gospels, just getting to know Jesus better. Uh, it's never a disappointing endeavor. It always blesses you beyond your wildest expectations. And as we pick up our study, we find that Jesus is alive, he's conquered death, he's made payment for our sins, and he's secured an eternity in heaven with him for those who choose to accept his gift of grace. I don't like to say the phrase, his free gift of grace anymore, because after studying the crucifixion, I don't know how you could ever use the term free gift of grace when it was bought at the greatest price that's ever been paid for anything. It's a gift for us, but it definitely wasn't free. It cost him dearly. He is moving in and out of our dimensions at this time in our narrative in his resurrected eternal body. He's appearing only to those who love him to encourage them and give them direction for the future. So let's jump in at Matthew 28. We'll begin in verse 16. It says, then the 11 disciples, because Judas has killed himself by this time, went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. This is most likely Mount Hermon. And we'll find that not only the disciples, but many others gather together at this place to meet with Jesus. This most likely includes the bigger group of 70 disciples, the group of women who went to visit the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. And in all, over 500 people will see Jesus at this place at the same time. We know that because I put the verse on your outline. 1 Corinthians 15.6 tells us, After that, he was seen by 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So so this is what the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, is saying there. He's saying that at the time he wrote that letter to the people he wrote it to, he's telling them, hey, most of the people who saw Jesus, most of those 500 are still alive as you guys are reading this letter. In other words, if you want to go and talk to them to verify what I'm telling you, 
you can go talk to hundreds of people in Galilee right now who have seen the resurrected Jesus alive. That's quite a claim. That's quite a claim. It's not like, oh, I heard it from my brother who has a cousin who knows a guy who saw Jesus in this back alley for a second. He bumped into him. He's saying there are hundreds of people there, and if you want to go talk to them, you can go talk to them. So the disciples and over 500 people gather at this mountain in Galilee because that's where Jesus had told the disciples he would meet them next. Back to Matthew 28, 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And here's what that means. Some of them who saw Jesus literally couldn't believe their eyes. I don't know if you've ever seen anything and thought to yourself, that, that just can't be possible. I cannot be seeing what I'm seeing. That's what it means. They haven't figured out how to process or connect the dots with, with what they're seeing because they're thinking, well, he died, but he's there talking to us right now, and they don't know what to do with that. Little details like this really testify to the, the honesty and integrity of Scripture because if you were making the story up, you would never add a detail like, but some doubt it. You'd instead write something like, and everyone worshipped him. And nobody doubted. Just an interesting little observation. Verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, both to those who were worshiping him and those who were doubting, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Now, in the original Greek, the word go actually means as you are going. And that's a big deal because Jesus isn't telling these 500 people that they need to leave their homes and go out as missionaries. He's telling them that everywhere they find themselves going in life, as they're going to work, as they're going to school, as they're going on vacation, as they're going on business trips, wherever they find themselves going, they are to do what Jesus tells them next. He says, and make disciples of all the nations. Underline the word disciples. Now, I had you underline that because I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say make converts. He doesn't say get as many people to raise your hand at the end of your message as possible. He doesn't say make fans or make people like Christians more. He says make disciples. A disciple is a, is a disciplined follower. The word discipline is the root of the word disciple. It's someone who's actually living out what they claim to believe. The idea is that as people became a part of the church, the body of believers, other believers, we the church, were to teach them how to follow Jesus, what it means to actually live for Jesus. Now in our modern church culture, we do not like this idea whether we realize it or not. Because if you're gonna teach anybody how to do anything, it means that you're going to have to tell them that some things are right and some things are wrong. Can you imagine if somebody said, you know, I just had the greatest experience. I saw a baseball game on TV and I'm gonna play baseball now and I know you're on a team, so I'm gonna join your baseball team. You say, that's great. And they come to the first practice and they're wearing like a bicycling outfit, you know, like the tight pants, the tight shirt, a bike helmet, they're there, and they're like, I'm here to play some baseball. And they say, okay, well, it's your, your turn to hit, and they go up to the plate, and they've got a tennis racket with them, and they pull out a pool ball, throw it in the air, and hit it as hard as they can, and yell, touchdown, yes! And you say, ah, dude, um, 
That's not how you play baseball. I said, excuse me? I said, that's, that's not how you play baseball. Can you imagine if they said, oh, I'm sorry, how many World Series rings do you have? Did, did you ever play professional baseball? No. So maybe you shouldn't be such a hypocrite. Maybe you should worry about your baseball game instead of telling me how I should do my baseball game. Now we hear that, and that, that would be a ludicrous scenario, ludicrous. If you apply this to any other area, any other skill, any other pursuit, it's total nonsense. But in the church, in the church what we do is the equivalent of responding to that guy by saying, I'm so sorry if I offended you. I had no right to judge the way that you played baseball. What's important is that you're on your own baseball journey. The truth is, he's never gonna learn how to play baseball unless somebody says, dude, here's the bottom line. That's not how you play a freaking game of baseball, okay? That's not how it works. That's not what it looks like. And in the church, when you have new believers coming in, obviously with love and with grace, you can't make disciples without at some point saying, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what he told us to do, so this is what we're gonna do. And sometimes it means saying, hey, what you're choosing to do is not what a follower of Jesus does. That's not what a follower of Jesus does. It's not what a disciple does. And we live in a church culture right now where we are terrified to do that. And the reason is that we've forgotten that Jesus said, make disciples. So what does that mean? It means literally that Jesus would be more blessed by a church with 10 disciples in it than a thousand converts, a thousand fans, a thousand people who self-identify as Christians but don't actually live for Jesus in any meaningful way. Our goal as the church is to make disciples. It's to make disciples, not to pad the numbers, which works out great because we've totally got that second part of not padding the numbers down. And so now if we just really hit the first part out of the park, everything's gonna line up. <laughs> Jesus says, make disciples. And then he says, secondly, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus himself telling us that the very first step of obedience for a new believer is baptism. Jesus, again, never instructed pastors to say, here's the thing, this is how you're gonna make new believers. At the end of your message, have someone come up on the piano, play softly, nothing too aggressive, really softly. If you can play like keyboard pads, like the really airy, heavenly sound, that's gonna be even better. If you can lower the lights, that's money right there. And then what you wanna do is you wanna ask people just to raise their hand. But it's okay, I mean, if a person's only scratching their head, you can claim that just to get, the, get things moving in the room, you know? And so if a person will very reluctantly put their hand up in a church service, the safest place a believer could be in, then, then clearly they must be ready to become a disciple. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't say you need to have people walk up to the front so that everyone can see what's going on as the pastor hugs them and they cry. It'll look really good on the church promo video later on. Jesus said there's gonna be one public demonstration that you're gonna make when you've decided to follow me. He said it's baptism. 
That's how you're going to announce publicly that you've made the decision to follow me. And you know why that's so good? Because it's very, very hard to get baptized by accident. Very, very hard. You know, here's the thing. I just got caught up in the moment and then made a plan to three weeks later attend a class where I learned the meaning of baptism and then I sort of fell into the pool a month later and it just happened. I think Jesus said that because it requires intentionality. It requires a genuine decision. And so here's the bottom line. If you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. Not because your salvation is at stake. It isn't. But because Jesus told you to. I always say this when people talk to me about baptism. Do I have to be baptized? I say, no. But it is the very first thing Jesus asked you to do after you became a believer And if you're not sure you want to do the very first thing Jesus has asked you to do after you've become a believer, you really need to ask if you've become a believer. I'm ready to follow Jesus, whatever he wants. I want you to be baptized. That doesn't work for me. That's not a good start, right? It's not a good start. You might be like, if you had a flow chart, you'd have an arrow that says, go back to step one. Give your life to Jesus. Let's try this thing again, okay? So if you want to be baptized and you haven't been, let us know. Mark it on your connection card and we will make that happen. We'll use a hot tub. We'll use a hog trough. We'll do whatever we got to do. We'll make it happen. So just as an interesting side note, though, in the original language, it's very interesting. Jesus doesn't say that we're to baptize in the names, plural, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says name, singular. Why? Because it's the mystery of the Godhead, the Trinity, three in one. So in the spirit of destroying my quota of one church tradition per Sunday, this is the one. We're not actually instructed to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's actually saying you're to baptize people in the name of God, which literally means on the behalf of God. Say, out of your obedience to the Lord, I baptize you. Now, am I still going to say the Father, Spirit, Son thing? Absolutely, it just works. I don't really have a substitute. But I just wanted to point that out there. And it's also important because when anybody questions the theological concept of the Trinity, understand this here. Here is Jesus himself saying the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, personally identifying all three as members of the Godhead. Now, Jesus is going to hammer the make disciples thing again, and and this is how he does it. Verse 20, his final instruction in this short list is go out and then make disciples, baptize them, teaching them to, and then underline this, observe all the things I have commanded you. Observe all the things I have commanded you. Make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to do the things I've said. Again, this, this is really, really important. We believe that we're living in the age of the Laodicean church. This is the time in church history that Jesus describes in Revelation chapter 3 when most of the mainstream church will be lukewarm, not passionate for Jesus at all, thinking everything is okay, but having essentially no relationship with him. And, And one of the ways I see this happening is through preachers and pastors and writers and bloggers and Christians who play down to the point of dismissal the importance of literal obedience to Jesus. This is an epidemic in the modern Western church right now. Now, it's true that Christianity is about a relationship, not religion. And it's true that everything we do as believers is to be out of our relationship with Jesus. But I hear an awful lot that takes that idea 
and twists it all the way to, you don't need to weigh yourself down with trying to obey Jesus' commandments. Just keep being you. You be you because God made you and he loves you just the way you are. The truth is that Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you just the way you are. And so he gave us the book of James in the Bible to help us understand that if we don't find ourselves inwardly wanting to obey Jesus, then that may be an indication that we don't actually have a relationship with him. Jesus himself said plainly, it's on your outlines, in John 14, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. See, that's problematic because Jesus directly linked loving him with obeying his commandments. He didn't say, if you want to be saved, obey my commandments. He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. You'll want to obey my commandments. So write this down. Loving Jesus means obeying Jesus. Loving Jesus means obeying Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So when it comes to our lives and when it comes to helping our brothers and sisters live for the Lord, here's the flip we need to make. We need to understand that when we help each other obey Jesus, we are helping each other to love Jesus. Those are one in the same things. And I've said before, if God has a love language, it's obedience. It's obedience. Do you remember when Saul was instructed by Samuel to go and completely obliterate an enemy army and their king, and he brings back the king as a trophy, and he brings back some of the livestock that he was supposed to slaughter under the instructions of God, and he says, well, I brought them back to give as a sacrifice to God. Like, what's, what's wrong with that, you know? And he is told by Samuel on behalf of God that obedience is better than sacrifice, Obedience is better than sacrifice. That God would rather have obedience than the greatest church service. He would rather have us do what he's asked us to do. So if you want to know how to love God, obey God. That's what he's asked us to do. Right here as he's commissioning these believers to live as ambassadors, he says, share the gospel, baptize those who receive it, grow them into disciples by teaching them to obey my word, and that's not a commission to pastors only. That's a commission to every believer, including you. And then he says this. I love this. It's underlined in my Bible a hundred times. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always. What a promise. What a promise. I, I hope you have that verse memorized because anytime my mind and emotions begin to experience the slightest bit of doubt that God is with me, I correct my mind and I correct my emotions with this verse. And, and all I do is I simply pray, Jesus, thank you that you have promised to be with me always, always. Every single time that I do that, my doubt begins to recede and my faith begins to rise. So write this down. Jesus has promised to always be with us. He's promised to always be with us. And he is. He is. His spirit is here right now. Last week we saw... Peter being commissioned by Jesus, even though Peter had messed up terribly. This week, we see Jesus commissioning believers who can't even wrap their head around the fact that he's alive yet. Jesus doesn't say to you and I, you know, why, why don't you sit on the bench until you figure things out? 
I mean, you shouldn't really be doing any ministry till you know what soteriology is and eschatology and pneumatology. You don't have a singleology under your belt right now. Instead, he says, well, why don't you get in the game with what you do know? Why don't you start sharing what you do know? What do you know? Jesus loves me. He's prepared a place in heaven for me. My life has never been more meaningful than it is with Jesus at the center of it. Share that. Serve with what you do have. I don't know how to do anything. Can you stack chairs? Can you learn to make coffee? Serve with what you can do right now. And so Jesus commissions these people who are still trying to wrap their head around the fact he's alive. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it's on your outline, tells us that after that he was seen by James and then all the apostles. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 16, 15. We're going to be jumping around a little bit just to put these things in order. Mark 16, 15. It says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. This is just one of those verses, verse 16, Mark 16, 16, that makes it so clear that there is salvation for those who put their faith in Jesus and there's condemnation in just the same real way for those who do not. And just to clarify again, it's not baptism that saves you. How do we know that? Who's someone who wasn't baptized but yet still went to heaven? We know for sure. The thief on the cross next to Jesus. No time to do any good works. No time to give any money to the church. No time to get baptized. No time to do anything. And Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. Verse 17, it says, and these signs will follow those who believe. Now, please note the wording. Jesus says these signs will follow those who believe. Not these signs should be sought out by those who believe. Not these signs should be pursued or not these signs should be the center of your church services, but these signs will follow those who believe. In other words, these signs will naturally happen around those who believe. And then Jesus lists a bunch of signs and wonders that would follow the apostles of the early church. And all of these are actually documented in the book of Acts. He says, in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. Speaking of the spiritual gift of tongues, which is a topic for another day. Verse 18, he says, they will take up serpents as the apostle Paul did when he was bitten by a venomous snake and yet not harmed while on the island of Malta in Acts 28. He says, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And I can't help but notice that these signs and wonders, which Jesus says will follow those who believe, are not connected to televangelists. He doesn't say, these signs will follow those with an audience of over a million on TBN. But he connects them to preaching the gospel as you go. He says, that's where these things are going to show up, where people are preaching the gospel as they go about their daily life. And the things that are being mentioned by Jesus are still happening today, but they're happening disproportionately in places like Asia, in villages in Africa, the underground church in China, in locations we don't hear a lot about. Do you know why? Because that's where believers are boldly sharing the gospel. That's where they're putting their lives on the line to preach the name of Jesus to people. And God is still doing these things in those places. If you have a desire to see more miracles, 
more signs and wonders. I would encourage you to start sharing the gospel. Start praying for the lost. Start being bold with the gospel. And signs and wonders and incredible miracles will begin to show up and follow where that is being done. They're still happening where the gospel is being boldly proclaimed. And now I'm going to be flipping back and forth between Acts 1 and Luke 24. We're going to start in Acts 1-3, and you'll be flipping back and forth with Luke 24. Speaking of the disciples, Acts 1-3 says, To whom he, which is Jesus, also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. He showed himself to them multiple times and proved that he was real being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them. So it's now the 40th day after Jesus has risen from the dead. He's gathered together the remaining 11 disciples and we're gonna flip back now to Luke 24, 44. Luke 24, 44, where we read, then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. That's how we know there's prophecy in the Psalms, Jesus told us. Verse 45, and and then I underlined this, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, guys, guys, this everything that's happened, me dying and rising from the grave, this is what my ministry has been about. It's what I was pointing to. It's what all of the scriptures have been pointing to all along, and he supernaturally gives them the ability to link his ministry, his life and death with everything that the Bible prophesied about Messiah, and suddenly they understand the connection, and they're able to connect the dots, and they get it. And I don't know if Jesus did that by just snapping his fingers and being like, understand. And if he did that, then I, then I can't help wondering how long had he been waiting for the Father to give him the all clear to do that? Like how many times in his ministry had he just been like, oh, Lord, please, can't, can we just do it now? Can we just make them understand? And so this is the moment, maybe this is the moment he's like this, and they're like, oh, and he's like, right, right, <laughs> right? And so... In my head, that's the way it happened, but he could have also led them through a Bible study in the same vein as he did with the two men on the road to Emmaus. He could have done it that way too, but in my head, he just clicked his fingers and they were like, oh, I see what you did there. (laughs) What a blessing it is that you and I can have that same experience when we open up the word. Do you know, understand that, that based on what the Word says here, the ability to understand what's really going on in the Word of God is a gift given to us by the Lord, that He unlocks our understanding, that when you and I sit here and we go, oh yeah, I totally get what's going on, that's what was prophesied in Genesis and the life of Joshua and David, the stuff that just seems logical to us is not understanding that every human being has or can have. It's a supernatural gift from God that he gives to those who he knows will follow him. So it is a gift and it is a blessing that as we open the Bible, it speaks to us. And I'm so grateful that we can have that experience every single day of our lives. It's awesome. So write this down. Jesus gives supernatural understanding of the scriptures to those who have decided to follow him. 
He gives supernatural understanding of the scriptures to those who have decided to follow him. So when you sit down with the word of God, every single day I pray, just thank him that he's in you. And I always like to begin studying the word by just praying, Lord, give me understanding. Give me understanding. I don't want to read a chapter so that I can check a box, but I I want to understand and I want to know you more. And the Lord is faithful to answer that prayer. Verse 46, it says, then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary. So in other words, this is what was written. This is why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Everything that's happened, my death and resurrection, the gospel I've preached, exactly as the scripture said would happen happened so that you could be witnesses of it. I can't imagine what it would be like as they begin to realize that all of this, that the whole Bible has been pointing toward, Jesus has chosen them to be the guys to go tell people. As that began to dawn on them, it must have been just an incredible and and overwhelming realization that he chose them to be witnesses to this. And I feel the same way, and I hope you do too, about what God has done in your life and my life. Just what an incredible thing that Jesus would do what he did, lay down his life, and then say, and I'm leaving it up to you guys to let people know. I'm leaving it in your hands. I always shake my head at that and think, Jesus, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better plan. And he says, no, no, you're it. I want to use you to do it. It's amazing. You know, Jesus didn't receive a secret revelation and perform miracles that nobody saw. He preached in public. He predicted his death and resurrection in public. He was killed in public. And he rose from the dead to appear before hundreds of witnesses in public. You can name any other religious figure you want. Muhammad, Buddha, Lao Tzu, Confucius. None of them did anything even remotely supernaturally miraculous in public. Jesus proved he was God by rising from the dead and then actually appearing to people who saw him and touched him. It's incredible when you begin to study all the other world religions, all of them, all of them are one person saying, I received a supernatural revelation from God. Nobody else was there. Nobody else can verify it but you should just take my word for it because that's the best they can do when they're not God. Because Jesus was God, he did miracles in front of people. He died in front of people and he rose from the dead in front of people doing what nobody else could do because only he's God. Verse 49, he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem, that means wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Underline that word power from on high. Then I also underline that word upon. Jesus tells them, next step for you guys, go to Jerusalem and wait there to receive power from on high. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that special empowering to live as witnesses for Jesus, the power to live the Christian life. And you can read about the day that happened in the second chapter of Acts. The book of Acts is simply the sequel 
to the Gospel of Luke. It was also written by Luke. Now back to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up midway through verse 4, where Luke gives us a more detailed version of what Jesus has just shared. Acts chapter 1, halfway through verse 4, it says, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be, and then underline, baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus wants to talk about this power that he wants to give them to live as his witnesses, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the disciples want to talk about politics. Jesus tells them, boys, this is not about my kingdom coming to earth. This is about my kingdom coming to your hearts. That's the revolution I'm talking about right now. The stuff you're asking about is going to happen much, much later and not in the way that you think. Verse 7, and he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So here's what's happening. The disciples are asking Jesus, Lord, is now the time when you're going to make Israel its own country again. They're occupied by the Romans at this time. And so there's this expectation, even among the disciples and among all the Jews, that Messiah would restore Israel to be its own independent political nation. We're told right here, that's the expectation. It doesn't say the kingdom of God, does it? It says the kingdom to Israel. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And notice that it says restore, implying it had been there before. The kingdom of God had never been in Israel before. Jesus had never sat on the throne in Israel and ruled. He had never done that before. What they're talking about is Israel being its own kingdom. Will it become a kingdom again, its own political nation? They have that expectation. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, <laughs> you guys, you guys are so stupid. God is done with the Jews. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, guys, here's the thing. All that stuff about Israel and the future and the kingdom, that's all allegorical. It's not actually going to happen. Jesus actually affirms their expectation by telling them it's not for you to know when that's going to happen. He doesn't say if that's going to happen. He literally says it's not for you to know the time, implying that that's going to happen but you guys don't need to know when right now. And I share that because many believers in many churches hold to the theological position that God has done with Israel and has replaced her with the church. And there's many, many reasons why that doesn't line up with the Bible. But what we have here is the disciples sharing their clear expectation that God would at some point in the future make Israel an independent political nation again and Jesus affirming their expectation by saying, you guys don't need to know when that's going to happen. And that did happen in 1948. That exact thing happened. So write it down. Jesus affirms his disciples' expectations that Israel will one day become an independent political nation again. Jesus affirms his disciples' expectations that Israel will one day become an independent political nation again. Then in verse 8, he says, He's getting the conversation back to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you shall receive power, underline power, when, and then underline the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you remember back in John 20 when Jesus breathed on the disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm inclined to believe when Jesus says receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the Holy Spirit. I think it happens. That was the moment they were born again. They were born again. The Holy Spirit comes into, takes residence inside of every believer at the moment of salvation. When you're saved, when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in you. Ephesians 1 says, and he marks you by being in you to guarantee the fact that you're saved. Here Jesus promises the disciples that the Holy Spirit will also come upon them. This is referring to the promise they'll receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he tells them, when this happens, the purpose is not salvation. The purpose is that they might receive power to be his witnesses. So the Holy Spirit comes into your life the moment you give your life to Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon you when you say, Lord, I need your power in my life so that I can live as a witness for you. As we've mentioned before, sometimes those two things happen at the same time. Sometimes a person is saved and is baptized in the Holy Spirit at the same time. Here's the easiest way to remember it. Write this down. The Holy Spirit enters a person for salvation and comes upon a person for service. Enters a person for salvation and comes upon a person for service. So how do you know if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? The issue is, are you willing to take the stand as a witness for Jesus whenever you're called? When an opportunity happens in life and somebody asks you a question about God, about your life, about your values, about Jesus, is there a power there inside of you that says, yeah, I'm, I'm excited you asked? Or is it like, oh, oh, this is my worst nightmare. How can I change the, sub how can I change the subject? If that's what's happening, then there's no power and you haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you need to be, and you just need to ask the Lord for that in order to receive it. The Greek word for witness is martus, martus, from where we get our English word martyr. And that's fitting because being a witness for Jesus will cost you your life. Every one of the disciples except John would be killed for their faith. And John wasn't for lack of trying. They boiled him in oil and he wouldn't die. And then they left him on the island of Patmos to die. Instead, he wrote the book of Revelation. Must have been really frustrating to try and deal with John. You're like, oh, come on, just die already. But if you and I have truly given our lives to Jesus, then we've, we've already lost our lives. We've already decided that Jesus is worth more than our social standing or connections. He's worth more than the approval of society. He's worth more than money or power. He's worth more than our selfish dreams and ambitions and desires. He's worth more. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the power that God gives to the man or woman who says, Lord, I know that you're worth more than anything. Give me the power to actually live that out, to actually live a life that shows I believe you're worth more than anything. As I mentioned a minute ago, you can read about the day that happened in the second chapter of Acts, the day of Pentecost. Jesus doesn't say that we are to witness. Did you notice that? He says that we are to be witnesses. He doesn't say we're to be lawyers either. Well, why don't you believe in God? What about these three pieces of proof? What do you say about that? What's your plan? You're going to hell, what are you gonna do about it? He doesn't say you're to be a lawyer. He says you're to be witnesses. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what does a witness do? What does a witness do? A witness, when called upon, tells people what they've experienced and what they've observed. That's what we're called to do, to share with people what Jesus has done for us in our individual lives, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what we've observed in our own life. Write that down. A witness shares what they've experienced and observed. And then in his first epistle, Peter tells us to, and this is on your outline, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. The idea is this. You begin by sharing with people what Jesus has done for you, how he's changed your life, saved your life, and then educate yourself so that you can give an answer to the person who says, I'm so glad that happened in your life, but how do you know that's true for everybody? Those 500 believers who saw Jesus, they didn't need to learn apologetics because if someone said to them, yeah, but how do you know it's true? They could say, I saw him. I touched him. I spoke with him. I was there, bro. Like, that's a really, really good argument for why you believe Jesus is alive, right? But even at the time when Peter wrote his first epistle there, he was writing to believers who hadn't seen the resurrected Jesus. And so now there was a new criteria needed, and he was saying, you've got to think through, what are you going to tell people for why they should believe in Jesus? Because your experience could easily be dismissed as being subjective, because the Muslim, the Hare Krishna, the Hindu, they can all share a story of personal experience as well. So the question is, what are you going to say when people say, how do you know that your experience is rooted in truth? You need to figure out how to do that. You need to have a good explanation for that. Not arguing a point, but sharing what your experience has been and then sharing why they should trust that your experience was true. Verse 9, it says, Now when he had spoken these things, and then we're going to switch back to Luke 24, pick things up in verse 50. Luke 24, verse 50, it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany. In just a minute, we'll read in the book of Acts that this was the mount called Olivet, which is the Mount of Olives. However, Luke tells us here that this was the eastern side of the Mount of Olives by the small town of Bethany, which was just outside of Jerusalem and was a favorite retreat of Jesus because his dear friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived there. So in Jerusalem, you have the Mount of Olives. The western slope looks down onto Jerusalem. You go over the mountain, the eastern slope looks down on Bethany, this town just about 45 minutes outside of Jerusalem if you're walking. And I share that because if you ever go to Jerusalem, most tour guides will take you to the western side, the Jerusalem side of the Mount of Olives, and they'll tell you, this is where the ascension took place. It's not true. All you have to do is read your Bible. And I share that because when Jesus comes back, the Bible says he's going to return at the exact same spot from whence he departed. The Bible also tells us that you and I, the church, will be with him when he returns. And I don't want anybody from my church embarrassing me by going to the wrong side of the Mountain of Olives and getting lost during the second coming, okay? So I want you to know he's coming to the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Don't be wandering around like a fool on the western side during the second coming, making me look bad, okay? So then it says, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Would you underline bless them, bless them? Don't you love this about Jesus? What's the last thing he did on earth before he returned to heaven? 
he blessed those who loved him. That was his final action on the earth. He lifted his hands and he blessed them. That's just who he is. That's just what flows out of Jesus. He's a God who loves to bless. So write that down. Jesus' final act on earth was to bless his disciples. Verse 51, now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Acts 1 describes it this way. We'll flip back there. In Acts chapter 1 verse 9 it says, while they watched he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, I don't think this was a regular cloud like a nimbus or a cumulus cloud, but rather this was the cloud of the glory of God, what's known as the Shekinah. It's the same cloud that led the children of Israel through the wilderness by day. It was the cloud of God's presence that filled the temple on the day it was dedicated and was so powerful that the priests were unable to perform their duties. This is the cloud of God's presence that enveloped Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you're like me, you've probably always imagined the transfiguration as Jesus sort of slowly lifting up and slowly going away and the disciples watch him like one of those helium balloons till they squint and they can't see him anymore. And then Peter probably says, no, I can still see him. I can still see him. They're like, shut up, Peter. You can't see him. No, I can. I totally, you guys can't, but I can see him. I can see him. He's showing himself to me. Yes. However, this cloud that receives Jesus being the glory of God makes it more likely that, that this cloud sort of comes down and, and Jesus rises up a little bit and sort of is just enveloped by and disappears into this cloud of glory as opposed to slowly ascending to a height of 10,000 feet. Verse 10, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Understand this, we know that this is the ascension. The disciples don't know that this is the ascension. So they're actually waiting to see, is he going to come back down in a minute? Is he going to say something before he goes or, or, is, or is this it? So they're kind of just watching and waiting to see what's going to happen next, which is why the Lord has to have these two men show up. And just as a point of interest, some scholars have suggested these two men may not have been angels, but, but rather Moses and Elijah, the same two men who joined Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's just a speculation. Verse 11, the two men who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Why are you staring at the sky? He told you he was coming back. Get to work. That's the idea here. And this is one of those places in scripture that make it clear that Jesus is coming back to the earth again. And it's really important that it says in like manner, because that means he's coming back again in a physical body. He's coming back literally. And this is the event that's known as the second coming. And without doing a whole separate study, just to summarize, I can tell you the second coming is going to take place after the rapture. It's going to take place after the great tribulation. And we, the church, will return with Jesus to the eastern side of the Mount of Olives at the time of the second coming, where Jesus will begin to rule the earth as king. We will rule with him. And for a thousand years, known as the millennial kingdom, Jesus will restore the earth back to a Garden of Eden type state. And Jesus will not be coming back again as the suffering servant. He'll be coming back as the conquering king. 
And that's why it's so important that you accept the invitation of Jesus, the suffering servant, because when he's coming back again, he's coming as the conquering king. Returning to Luke 24, in verse 22, we read, and they worshiped him. Would you underline that word, worship? They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus ascends into heaven. In this moment in time, in this context, the last thing his followers see of him, the last picture they have of Jesus is him with his arms out blessing them. That's the final visual they have of Jesus. And the last thing in this context that Jesus sees of his followers as he leaves the earth is his followers with their hands stretched out worshiping him. And that's the essence of our relationship with Jesus. He blesses us and we worship him. He gave his life so that he could bless us and so we worship him with our lives. That's just what we do. That's what it means to be Christian. It means worshiping Jesus. Acts 1.12 tells us, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. That's about three quarters of a mile. I know I'm bouncing around like crazy, but Luke 24.53 tells us they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God, praising and blessing God. Underline those two words. That's the only response you can have when you've truly encountered Jesus. You will have the desire to praise and bless him for what he's done for you. And I love this verse because I believe this is to be the motivation of the church. This is the primary reason we gather together as the church, is to praise and bless God. Not to come to church with an attitude that says, what can I get out of it? What's the sermon on today? What songs are you guys doing? Uh, again. But to come to church with the purpose and intent of praising and blessing God. And when you do that, you won't ask the question at home, do I feel like worshiping God today? You'll instead ask the question, is God still worthy of my praise today? That's the question. And the answer is always yes. He's still worthy? Then how I feel is really irrelevant because that's not how I determine whether or not I'm going to church. He's still worthy, so I'm going. I thought the main reason for church was to study the word. Why do we study the word? So that we can praise and bless God with greater understanding and greater appreciation in the ways that he desires us to. We don't study the word to get smarter. We study the word so that we can honor and praise and bless Jesus the way that he wants to be blessed. Well, I didn't get that much out of the service. That's okay. It wasn't for you. It's for Jesus. How do you measure a good church service? How, how do you know when you've had a good small group Bible study? When Jesus was praised and blessed. If that happened, it was a good service. It was a good Bible study. Write this down. Our main reason for going to church is to praise and bless Jesus together. To praise and bless Jesus together. Just to point out the, the symmetry of Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel began in the temple with the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. And Luke's gospel ends in the temple as well with believers praising and blessing Jesus. Mark's gospel then ends with these two verses. Let me just read to you from Mark 16, 19. It says, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. I have that underlined, sat down at the right hand of God. You see, in the temple, there was nowhere for the priests to sit because the work was never done. 
There was always another sacrifice to be made to sin. There was always another offering that needed to be made. The process was never, ever complete. But here we're told that Jesus, our great high priest, is sitting down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Why? Because the work is done. The work is done. He himself has become the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the perfect sacrifice for all sin across all time. So make a note of this. Jesus, our great high priest, is seated at the right hand of the Father because the work is finished. The work is finished. That's why he's sitting down. It's no more work to be done when it comes to our salvation. Verse 20, it says, and then they went out and preached everywhere. They went and did what Jesus told them to do. And then check this out. How cool is this part of the verse? I love this phrase. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. I love that phrase. The Lord working with them. Never forget, church, that as you set out to do the work of the Lord in your marriage, in your family, at your workplace, in your school, in your friendships, as you set out to do the work of the Lord, the Lord is working with you. He's working with you. He's not distant going, good luck. He's with you. His spirit is working with you. So write this down. As we do the Lord's work, the Lord works with us. As we do the Lord's work, the Lord works with us. As they boldly proclaimed the gospel, signs and wonders followed them. They didn't go out and say, check out these signs and wonders and believe. They preached the gospel and signs and wonders followed them as needed, as determined by the Lord. Almost done. Hang with me. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul lays out for his readers the significance of the resurrection, why it matters, what it means, what it has accomplished. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 15 And we're going to read a bunch of it just straight through. This is how I wanted to end this series. There may be some things you don't understand and we don't have time to break it down. I wish we did. So let me encourage you to take some time this week to study 1 Corinthians 15. Break it down on your own. Research it. Read it over and over. Soak on it. Ask the Lord to give you understanding. Go one verse at a time because this chapter is an absolute treasure. And I'll just start at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren... I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me, that's Paul, also, as by one born out of due time. Then let's jump down to verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be in all. Skip ahead to verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this incorruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, the resurrected Jesus appeared over 500 people in Galilee. And yet when you read Acts chapter 2, when you take the trip to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when you go into the upper room where they're waiting to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's 120 people there. 120 people. At the end of Jesus' entire ministry, three years of miracles, teachings, after 40 days of appearing to people in front of 500 people, there's 120 people, 120 people, 120 disciples. How is that possible? What happened to the other 380 people who saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes? We know what happened. Stuff came up. A job, a dinner, a vacation, a project, you know, life stuff. And so I say to you this evening, having seen what you've seen, having heard what you've heard, knowing what you know about Jesus, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Live as a disciple of Jesus. Make your life about doing the Lord's work. Live to obey him. Live to praise him. Live to bless him because he died and rose again to bless you. That's why he came. That's what this was all about. So live for him. Don't hold anything back. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to the earth to live here. Thank you for those three years that he ministered among us. Thank you that he put on flesh and bone. Jesus, thank you that you have experienced every temptation, every difficulty we could ever experience 
in a more intense and difficult way than we could ever understand. And thank you that after doing that, you didn't judge us or leave with contempt for us and our weakness, but you died for our weakness and you were beaten for our infirmities and you were murdered for our sins and for our failures. And that you're a God, a a high priest who sympathizes with us. And as your word says, we therefore know that we can come boldly before the throne of grace that we might find help in our time of need. And so Jesus, if any of us need help in any area, we look to you because you're our only hope. And Jesus, we want to live lives that bless and praise you the way that you have blessed us. Lord, whether we are taken in the rapture or die a natural death or are called to die for you, Lord, I pray that every single one of us has made the decision to give up our lives for you already. That as we wake up tomorrow, we will wake up as men and women who belong to you who will make our decisions and align our priorities so that they line up with your priorities. We want you to rule in us. We want you to reign in us. And Father, we also pray for any among us who who may not have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that supernatural power to live as your witnesses. In your name, Jesus, would you just fill every one of us with your power Even those of us who've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, would you fill us up one more time with your Spirit so that we can be bold witnesses to what you've done in us and for us, witnesses to the greatness of the gospel, Jesus. For those of us who feel empowered, Lord, would you give us even more that we might do more for you, that we might be bolder for you, that we might labor with greater energy for you, Jesus, empowered by your Spirit. We love you, Lord. Just be still before the Lord, and and, and if you know that you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just ask Him for it right now, and I believe that He will give it to you. We believe that. And then allow the Lord to to speak to you, and, and just give Him the freedom to come into your life. If there's any area that's not lining up with His desires for your life, would you allow Him to show you that? Would you allow Him to bring it to your attention, and, and then commit to change that? to honor him. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, 
I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.